world is becoming more unglued by the day. Local consequences are now showing up. We are seeing sky-high gas prices, higher food prices, shortages, and more. How should you respond? Go to redpills.tv slash patriot. That's R-E-D-P-I-L-L-S dot TV slash patriot. And secure your long-term emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. My Patriot Supply is by far the largest preparedness company in America. They're in stock and shipping quickly in unmarked boxes to your door. Their emergency food supplies last up to 25 years in storage. When you need it, it'll be there. Lunches, dinners, drinks, and snacks totaling over 2,000 calories a day. Get free shipping on any order over $99. Again, go to redpills.tv slash patreon. journey of conversations on the fringe all right good morning good evening good afternoon wherever you are in the world my name is josh that is david dubine this is red pill projects conversations on the fringe with you tonight and we're going to be having i'm telling you we're going to have an amazing conversation tonight we're going to be talking about galactic cycles mini ice ages political and uh, weather changes all of this stuff that's happening in the world right now if you don't know david dubine is the creator of adapt 2030 climate preparedness channels in the mini ice age conversations podcast he is the author of climate revolution which is now being updated and edited for its second edition i believe that's probably on its third now as a former coffee buyer in minimar he saw cold weather damage the coffee trees firsthand and heard farm owners telling stories about how their great-grandfathers in the 1880s experienced the same conditions when coffee was being introduced as a cash crop Freeze damage, top leaves, bean density changes, and 14% overplanting of new seedlings to compensate for cold losses sent him looking for answers. And he found cycles through history that affect food production. He believes in understanding our sun-driven climate is crucial as we progress deeper into the new Eddie Grand Solar Minimum. David, how are you doing tonight? Welcome to Conversations on the Fringe. Thank you. And the first thought I would throw out there, it's not CO2, it's not you. It's the sun. And, and you know what? Everybody in my audience would 100% agree with you. We've, we've talked about how the sun dictates 
weather patterns, climate patterns, long-term climate patterns on this planet. We saw this in a 2004 article by NASA when they were talking about the climatic changes on Mars and Jupiter that were coinciding with various different solar maximum and minimum patterns. And so why isn't that not affecting us here in the, in, in, on Earth, right? Yeah, we're much more close to the magnetic field of the sun. And also, if you want to step back to 2020, uh, Neptune's atmosphere reversed itself. Like there was a dark storm up there and it ripped in half and it reversed and started going in the opposite direction. Uh, Uranus had visible X-ray flares coming off the planet, jumping out to the rings and then off to space with your visible eyes like we would see an X-flare coming off the sun. So these changes are real. Oh, and Mars also, uh, it had to have been somewhere around June, July of 2021. The minerals in the crust of Mars started emitting auroras because they don't, Mars doesn't have a magnetic field like the Earth does, so there's no north-south pole orientation, but the, the minerals in the crust started to glow with aurora colors as well. So you start to see this as much more intense than anything on just a regular 11-year solar maximum, solar minimum cycle. We're going... You know, 400 year cycle, 2000 year cycle at the minimum on this. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's another correlation there as well, is that when we go into the solar minimum, we also have an increase in cosmic ray bombardment from the outer solar system, which also has a dire effect on our climatic patterns, in which we typically see less extreme weather. But when we go to those solar maximums, this is when we start to see the weather pick up and have more extreme weather. Yeah, this, the sun's responsible for so many things. Now, you think about cosmic rays being cloud builders as well, the precursors, and when they come ripping through the atmosphere, they ping off of everything, and then you know, that, that will eventually turn into a, crowd, a cloud droplet that will rain out. So you find the solar... If you look through the minimums and maximums, and if you go back further in time to the centennial minimum, which is the 100-year lows, mm -hmm. and then you start to look at these 11-year average solar maximum, solar minimum cycles... And then if you look out at the 100 year flow on that, you'll start to see that there's definitely changes in rainfall pattern and drought based on the 100 year cycles. But then you come into the 400 year cycle and you say, well, civilization changes on the intensity of a 400 year. And we're at it again right here, right now. And I wholeheartedly agree with you. A lot of people have said that we're coming out of uh, a mini ice age that happened in the lower driest period 10,500 years ago or so. Um, I'm curious now. I want to know how you kind of evolved into all this. Obviously, you were down there with the coffee beans. Oop, hopefully, we didn't freeze up there. Hold on a second here. OBS just shit out. One second. You look live to me. Well, no. Well, OBS. Oh, there it is. All right. We are back. All right. And so, hopefully, that's the only glitch that we have. I My computer updated the Windows 11 without my permission. No. Terrible. I know. I know. Horrible. So OBS has been having problems, but that's all right. We are back now. And I'm curious, is, is how did this evolution of discovery go for you? And what were the, the main points that you saw that really drove your interest? Well, take a step back. Uh, when I was working in China, I was with a, an algae biodiesel company and it was an American company, all American owned. And we started to produce some oil using uh, certain strains of algae and encapsulated bags on fish farm water surfaces. That way you weren't actually needing land space. 
And as soon as we started to prove concept and produce oil out of that, China said, get out. Thanks for the idea. Nice to come. You're an American company. You can't produce oil in China. And you can read all about that in Algae Industry Magazine, which uh, I did a full feature article on business in China on the algae uh, oil side of things. But that's when, you know, prices were getting excruciatingly high, $130 barrel, $140 barrel. And it was viable at that point, but anything under 100, you're not looking at algae biodiesel. It's way too expensive at that point. So, you know, a plant's a plant, if you will. And, uh, you know, Myanmar was really trying to get out farm gate improvements of livelihood for farmers. You know, they're out there just basically doing rice. So they were looking for higher value um, products for farmers to engage in. And Raceway Pond algae was one of them. So I was invited down there the coffee was the next step right on after that but the thing that set me on my quest was the whole reason i was into the algae biodiesel thing was i believed in co2 in the beginning of it you know i'd seen all the al gore movies i i, I ate it hook line and sinker until i got to myanmar and they started talking about the cold damage on the crops that their great great grandfathers uh, had endured and had to deal with that in the, in terms of losses and the overplantings and the different density of the beans. And when they roasted, the profiles were way different. So I, I just, just as a business guy, I'm just going out five years. Like, can we increase our supply and how can we run this through Asia? And, you know, can we continually get supply going out five years? That's where it brought me to. It was a simple business equation. Can we expand the business? Yes or no based on what's happening down there and this cycles of cold starting to damage the plants in Myanmar, you got to realize that's Burma, mm -hmm. way down near the equator. You know, part of the, you, you just getting above zero degrees, started getting nine degrees north latitude. That's Southern Myanmar right there. You know, then you get up into the, what you consider extreme tropical, tropical belts of 12 degrees north latitude. Like that's even, that's below Cuba going, and I'm thinking, wait, how is it getting cold down here? This makes zero sense to me. I was just baffled. So then um, I started looking online for research and I ran into John Casey, former NASA uh, space shuttle investigator after, you know, the accident. He was the lead on that 30 year distinguished career in NASA. But when he started talking about the cycles, his career was ruined. They vilified that man and run, just dragged him through the coals. And I'm so sad to see that somebody trying to bring the truth out that cycles are starting to drive what we're going to see politically and mm -hmm. civil unrest, etc. through history, these chapters that keep reemerging. And you just wonder why is it that whatever chapter of history we're at, we're always at the apex of science and art and agriculture and trade. And we're always at the apex before the collapse. So what was the cause for the collapse every single 100% of the time in history? Well, the sun changes its output state, the magnetic field of the planet changes, the jet streams and cloud cells move to different uh, places during this time. So the planting and harvesting dates are thrown out of kilter. Then we get into the food shortages and then you just see it run every single time. And once I understood this information, you know, I sit here, I started this back in 2013. So how far are we into it? Nine years now? You know, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And that was the whole point. Once I understood it, I realized that this is it. This is the thing that will shift society from this point forward. And I never look back. I've just been laser pointed, focused, and you will not deviate me from my course of going on to this research and trying to figure this out on how it will affect society. And that was really the step off point. I dropped off the cliff there, but I stepped onto an invisible platform that guided me along the rest of the way. And 
you know, then I started to see the lies that had been pushed across society and anybody who deviated from the established norms was also the same thing I've been experiencing that John did too. Shadow banned, mm -hmm. uh, channels removed, videos removed, um, demonetization, just any way they can get at you so you can't earn a living is where they always take it to. And then it's the de Vice News coming out with hit pieces on the reputation, pseudoscience, this, that, and the other. Great. Thanks for the free publicity. I appreciate it. Now I want to talk about the facts. So that's kind of where I went from there to here. And uh, it was just a journey of discovery from business guy into, well, we got a huge, huge problem, and I would like to talk about it to the normal person and present my information but I'm still at 176,000 subscribers nine months later in YouTube of this last year. For some reason, even though I'm getting more media exposure, larger audiences, have my own show on Brighton TV, vast reach out, I just can't you know, increase the subscriber count. It's unbelievable, really. It's coming to the point now, anything that doesn't sit with the narrative is considered... Uh, Put your own label on it, but they don't want the information to spread because the information, once you understand it on how to protect your families and your communities and get ready for this, they do not want you ready. These globalists do not want you ready. I assure you they do not. They want you to be part of the collateral damage, the starving. So they can roll out the central bank digital currency and your digital rationing card all in one fell swoop, but you won't do it until you're hungry. Then you'll do anything. Now, I, I actually, you made me, and it's a fascinating story about how this all happened to you. And I, and I agree with the, uh, the censorship. I, I was completely deleted. I had a, over 100,000 subscribers on my first YouTube channel, demonetized overnight on Facebook, Anchor FM, YouTube, Patreon. They wiped me out everywhere. I had to start all over again. And that's kind of why I started the Red Pill Project and did all this. And I only do this show specifically. This show right here is the only show I do on YouTube. And I do three other shows. Um, but... Looking at all this, it reminds me of Dr. Yuval Noah Harari from the World Economic Forum and a certain thing that he said about three months ago um, at one of their, their meetings. And he was talking about how humanity is not going to agree with what we do, we being the elites, and that we are in the process of building our technological arc to save us for something that potentially would, could happen, of which most of humanity won't survive. And you have to wonder... Do they know what's happening? I, I believe they do. But do they know what's coming and are they protecting themselves for what's coming and setting up a system that can be implemented directly after this all happens to where they have slave labor to rebuild their society once again? Absolutely, yes. You hit it on the head there. That's exactly what's happening. And the whole point of it is to... Keep people off the self-sufficiency. Like you have to think about my grandparents coming out of the Great Depression, knew how to pretty much repair anything, build anything, grow anything because they had to out of necessity. But, you know, we got on these supply chains over the last 50, 70 years and we got really lazy. It's, it's centralized systems are starting to break down. And because of that, we're very vulnerable. Almost nobody has these skills that our grandparents had. So if it does come down to the time where complex systems are even further shredded, you know, it, go, okay, good. Now go do it yourself. Well, most people don't have the skill. That's why you need to buy books, books that are going to be paper in front of your fingers. So if the internet goes down, you still have books on 
you know, medicine and building and canning and drying meats and storage and anything you could possibly think of, you know, 101 projects on a homestead. So you can build your chicken coops and get whatever you need, build your barn, understand the processes of what is the base of society. We need homes, we need food, we need fresh water and how to filter that water. So, you know, it's going to roll us back. I really believe we're going to head some head something back into uh, more of an 1860s lifestyle as we uh, get through this reset here. And when I say reset, I really want to be clear about it. What the World Economic Forum has planned for a quote-unquote reset is very different what, than what nature is about to throw at us. So I do believe they understand what nature is now in the process of unveiling across the planet for the next three years. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to ride on top of this natural cycle to achieve a more magnified output of food shortages to get everybody identified, get the digital IDs, get on the digital rationing cards, get your universal basic income, go back digital currency because it will be the only show left in town. Hmm. Unless you're in a community that barters. Right. And and that's actually uh, Sundays. We have a private Zoom on our, our private platform. And what we do is we actually go over um, prepping, canning, uh, preparedness, these types of things. It's something that we just started doing recently. Um, now, I, it, it's incredibly important to do those things, community organization, obviously. So explain to me what's causing this. How does all of this cycle operate? How long are these cycles? Do we have historical evidence of these cycles? Well, you started right there, Younger Dryas. Yeah. And notice how when you get into the climate debate, they never go further back to the Younger Dryas impact era because you could see temperatures rising 30 degrees Fahrenheit and dropping that quickly too. Yet we're fed that it's the all-time fastest rise ever. Just go back 12,000 years. Oh, no. It, it, it changed so drastically that I think after the younger drives, you know, it's it's a it's around this number. There are about 10 million people left on the planet. 10 million. So we've gone from 10 million through other cataclysms during this last 12 and a half thousand years to bring us back up to a population of 8 billion. And I know for sure the Lake Toba eruption 70,000 years ago in Indonesia uh, was another genetic bottleneck that knocked humanity down to, you know, sub 10 million people. So we start to go through these times. 70,000 years ago is really not a long time ago either. And then 12,500 years ago, and you could go through the alignments of all these different megalithic sites that show you that they were actually, you know, tracking as the the, the, store, the stars moved around, uh, depending on which culture was tracking which stars in the heavens there. But you got to think about the 8.1K year event. Tem global temperatures dropped about uh, 10 degrees Fahrenheit on a global average. And then the 4.1K, which is 4,100 years uh, before present back time, again, a massive dropout in temperatures. So what is it about there's these massive drops in temperature, population declines with it. We get into more stable growing periods where you know your plant and harvest states, population increases, and then it drops off a cliff again. Well, if you go, if you do the math, just simple, 8.1K, 4.1K, 0.1K, where we sit right at this second. So within 100 years, plus or minus, you can't tell me that it's that clean that every 4,000 years we hit these cycles, 12, 8, 4, present time, plus or minus 100 years. So, you know, even on this 4,000 year cycle that we're in the ballpark, mm -hmm. but then you start to think about how many cycles are overlaying on tops of cycles on tops of cycles. And another thing that really got me into is when, even if you dissect like the 11 year cycle, then you start to get into these, uh, 
DeVray's cycles on these 80-year periods. And then you start to, you know, wrap different 11-year periods inside on 88 or whatever it is. And then it can come out a bit further and a bit further. And it's, it's almost like the gears of a of a Swiss watch where, you know, you got the larger gears switching and moving and moving and, and they overlay on top. And I am absolutely certain the amount of information pillaged on this planet over the last 500 years that ended up in private libraries, the Vatican, et cetera, they absolutely know the cycles way better. And now we have modern technology and the sensors and data that they're receiving are months ahead of anything on public release. So Imagine if you owned a space agency, plus coupled with all of the ancient history and documents and codices and legends and everything else on stone or saved on metal. A lot of times they were gold tab, they were gold sheeting or silver sheeting on top, retranscribed again and again. Uh, the history's out there. We're just not privy to it. But something is absolutely at this juncture. And you're not being told about it. Yep. Now, why not? I find this interesting because what you're saying correlates a lot with what I've been researching for a very long time. 2010, um, I started noticing correlations between coronal mass ejections and earthquakes. Typically, we would have some type of earthquake on this planet uh, uh, a few days or a few weeks before a coronal mass ejection would actually hit the planet. And I started to wonder, I said, well, wh what, what is actually happening there? And so I started to look at the Earth as instead of this, uh, you know, liquid magma core and so forth as a hydraulic system. If I'm a hydraulic system and I have some type of piezoelectric effect that's producing an electric field that is inducing a magnetic field externally and that I have to control that pressure, I can do that with hydraulic pressure by alleviating various different plates on top, the movement of the upper strata of the earth, and that can alleviate or increase pressure in one direction or one side. And if the earth knew somehow it was connected, quantum entangled, whatever, to the sun, it would have to strengthen its magnetic field or weaken its magnetic field on one side, whether it's cosmic ray bombardment or solar radiation bombardment. It could produce an earthquake, which would allow the electrical propensity at the core to increase because of the increase in pressure or the alleviation of pressure. And therefore, the magnetic field would be able to fluctuate and adjust. And I started on this and I started seeing that. This wasn't the first time that we've had these types of events come up past. This isn't the first time that people talked about these types of events. This is in ancient history. They talked about various different connections between the earth and the sun. This is why the sun was revered within ancient mythology. This is why they looked at it as the primo god. Um, so I started noticing this as well as through the great, the great cycles, the great calendar is that we were on a transit through the galaxy. We go through various different densities of, of, Cosmic radiation of particles of gases through their transit through the galactic center all the way up to the top and bottom. We can look at it as four seasons. So, you know, I, I kind of agree with you wholeheartedly on everything that you're saying. Now, I, I'm curious, do you have any um, comments on that in the sense of how the Earth's magnetic field fluctuates pertinent to various electro uh, uh, coronal mass ejections? Yeah, because you have to think about the fields of the sun up there. The reason they start twisting into those uh, yeah, sunspots is disturbances in the magnetic field. And then you get those looping on the umbras up there. 
Electromagnetism and pressure differences, they're A and B. They're two separate sets of categories. So when we're talking about solar winds come blasting through at, you know, eight, 900 miles per or kilometers per second, there's also another factor at play which disrupts agriculture in that. So you described that perfectly, like, wow, you know, the way you hit that, I really haven't talked to too many people that can run it like that, that really get the inner workings of it. But you have to realize on the electromagnetism side, too, you're going to have an outbound current flow that if the earth, for a simplified, think of it as a capacitor, if there's an overcharge mm -hmm. on that, it regulates itself. So there's going to be an overcharge outbound current flow. And you can identify those where the halo elves are above and the, the ionosphere at about 100 miles up. But if you trace it further down, you're going to come into the blue jets and the red sprites. You start to map those over that are routinely seen in different areas across the planet over the crop grow zones. And you know that that's an electrical outbound flow, which is agitating and speeding up the current flow. Like a light bulb in a coffee shop is the best example. You can turn it up and it glows faster because there's more electrons running into that, into the current and the wires in there, or you can turn it down and you dial it down and there's elect let's see uh, electron, uh, you know, movement in there based on how fast things move on the flow of electricity into it. So when you think about it in a, as a electric circuit on the globe here on the outbound flows, the way that that electricity is going to disturb local weather patterns, it's going to heat and bend. So the general precipitation patterns, once they hit that new faster heated area, they're going to start moving and dropping precipitation in different places, or they're going to bend all the way around and the clouds are going to evaporate and they're going to come into a drought. So that's what I've been doing on the GIS mapping software is I'm trying to map out where I'm seeing these elves at the upper band, uh, at the ionosphere at that upper range, about 100 miles up, and then, you know, following it further down into the, the lower layers of the atmosphere where the sprites and the blue jets occur, and then finding those ground points and matching up agriculture zones and which crops are grown in there and doing a... a an addition subtraction on a global total, for example, barley, oats, they're going to have a way different outcome. If you reduce 20% of global oat production like there was in the Volcker region last year, that would be the reason oats spiked to record highs. You know, because corn, soybeans, and wheat, that's grown globally, and there's just so much of that crop out there that if you take one region offline, it's really not going to affect the global price. It is, but it's not going to send it to the stratosphere because you lost 20% of the oats and the barley. You know, so you, if you start to map out exactly what you're talking about, but now follow the current outflows and the disturbances over the ag zones, then you start to get into why this all really makes sense, why they follow the sun, why they worship the sun, because they knew, literally the ancients understood that the cloud cells and jet streams are either locked in place because of magnetics or they're allowed to flow free because the magnetic field has waned and weakened so much. Mm. Like nobody gives the ancients credit for understanding any of this. We're, you know, the basic, what we understand now, what we're talking about tonight is just, that would blow most professors off the wall. And so they would sit there and go like, Oh, I need to look that up. I'll get back to you with an answer, you know, kind of thing. But now take it into the agricultural zones that can be identified and mapped out with the losses of what we're both talking about tonight. Then you can do the mathematics on it and you know precisely where the crops will be lost and which countries will experience the food shortages first and the civil unrest first. So if you're, you know, excuse me, Josh, let me ramble for a second here. Yeah. But if you're an investor in an emerging market and you know that that currency is going to devalue 50 percent based on the civil unrest because of the crop losses, 
you know, that kind of information is a little bit valuable for people. And that's all I'll say there. I, I was going to ask, do you, do you, do you trade? Are you, uh, do you trade, uh, f- futures of commodities? <laughs> because this seems like uh, I don't be- legally because I can't yeah. because of the information that I put out with, uh, other groups of people. So I don't, but they do. I wouldn't doubt it because I that's exactly yeah, legally I'm going to say I do not trade based on the information I put out on the crop loss areas on the magnetism and the outbound current flows of our planet. I do not trade that. Man, it, it, it's fascinating Others too, do, though. because we live in such a dynamic system, but it's replicate. And this is the interesting thing is if you go down to the atom, if you go to the molecule, you go to the cell, you go to the planet, you go to the solar system, to the galaxy, it's a replicate system. And if we just paid attention, if we just observed nature for once in our friggin' lives and didn't allow money to control academia, we would begin to unlock the secrets that our ancestors once knew. Yeah, but unlocking those secrets means free power. Never-ending, limitless, on-demand power wherever you set up a unit that can use magnets to spin against each other. Now, again, the whole thing on metering every aspect of your life would go out the window, and there would be literally no control on the planet of these same globalist elitists because they need to have a monitored system and a metered system for every breath you take, every cup of water you drink, every, every morsel of food that you buy, the rent over your head everything but imagine if that was scraped away and limitless power was at your fingertips in your home of something half the size of your washing machine hmm explain to me i want to know this field. i want to jump into this because i i was a uh, in the 1990s i was fascinated with nikola tesla read everything i could possibly exactly. get yeah, on nikola go. tesla um i went into the military 10 years i worked on advanced electronic gun missile fire control systems, combat directory systems, got an education in basically electrical engineering. Um, And I'm still fascinated by this topic, especially free energy, or really, it's not really the right word for it, but energy from the vacuum, quantum fluctuation, whatever we want to call it, I'm fascinated by this. Explain, please. Well, I understood the same mechanics you did, so I ended up going up to Zagreb over in Croatia and... We went up into Nikola Tesla's laboratory over there. Now, uh, I was with somebody at the time, and they were saying, no, that's impossible. If these things were really working, as you say, they would be everywhere on the planet. It'd be the way to prevent all the pollution and stop all the CO2. I said, all right, well, I'm going to just let you see for what you see yourself. Remember, these patents have been around since the 1880s and 1890s. We're not talking anything new here. The 1880s, 1890s. We go into this place. I got in the Faraday cage. They shot a bunch of stuff around. I was, you know, because I was doing a video there. So they arranged that I could get in the Faraday cage when they were doing the demonstration. But as we walked through, there were no less than 16 working models of magnetic motors. Now, some of them were really simplistic and it was just two discs that moved around and other ones were just two magnetic fields on magnets that were going around on sticks and things. But they did have a couple models there that were spinning pretty fast, definitely on the RPMs around 1200 RPMs. And they were really loud inside too. So they had some sound shielding over the boxes there, but there were definitely an enormous amount of working models. And after we came out of there, it was just like the aha realization moment of they've hidden this technology hmm. because it's really super simple. 
like you as a kid in a classroom, you put two magnets on a desk and you push one toward the other one and it kind of moves away. Now replicate that with incredibly, uh, it could be an electromagnet or it could be a neodymium magnet mm -hmm. and get the, and I look back and this is another thing you and I are going to, we're going to definitely uh, resonate on this one here. A lot of the sacred geometry and the numerology that's within the uh, mystic schools mm -hmm. will show you the angles that you would need to orient those magnets. So when you start to run through all these sacred numbers, when you get up into the 36s, the 72s, the 108s, this type of thing, uh, you know, that's on what you might need to put at 37 and a half degrees on, on, a, on a tilt to get the magnet to break the bond to move to the next one. Mm. But when we come into some of these numbers, you know, that are routinely through history and everything carved in temples on three sixes and nines, and you go through not only the 36 degree, or you could either tilt your magnets at 36 degrees or 37.5 degrees off to get that magnetic uh, bond to break. And you might need to add maybe like 1% of your output back in to continue to get that to spin. But you can do that with, uh, you know, boards that we have today. But the same thing that I found with talking about the sun, when the sun's stepping down in its electric, electromagnetic uh, resonance state, once it gets below 36%, then things start to go haywire, which is exactly what we're seeing today. Like the magnetic field doesn't have to go to zero on the sun before we start to see extreme outcomes and output on the earth in terms of our terrestrial weather systems and uh, atmospheric disturbances. So I start to trace back in history because I lived in China and I know about the Beidou Qixing and the whole cult of the Big Dipper and how they use dragons to uh, represent, you know, fire flows from the sun, like plasma currents from the sun. They understood that way back. Like anything below 36 percent and the, the I guess the, the pinch would start to alleviate itself uh if you go up to david lapointe's work and take a look at some of his work he talks about the z pinch and you know different pressures that are involved in that and once it goes below 36 percent, all bets are off it doesn't have to go to zero but again just roll back into the sacred numerology and you'll start to see that there's points that match in science when you're then getting pressures electrical flows or uh, plasma densities that that things start to change at those integral uh numbers and experiments it's interesting that you mentioned that you're right. We will resonate on this. Um, the, the sun, I mean, the sun is 108 earth wide. If you took the sun 108 times, it's the exact distance to the earth. There's 108 moons in between the moon and the earth. This number 108 keeps replicating over and over and over again in the, uh, the Plato mystery schools where a lot of sacred geometry actually came about from, um, they revered all of the various different geometric structures, except for one that was hidden and secret. And you couldn't even mention its name within the mystery schools. And this was the dodecahedron, which is basically a pentagon, uh, a pentagon on each side. Now the angles between each angle, of the pentagon pentagon is 108. So I find it fascinating as well. 108 is, is nine, obviously Tesla connection there, but um, fascinating there. I, I you know, I, I've um, I used to work with a, a company just consulted for a little while, um, and they're they're no longer around. I think the uh, the guy was uh, I'm not going to mention his name here. He was a Mormon and came out and confessed to saying he wanted to do some bad things to some people and. 
the whole organization went to crap. You probably know who I'm talking about. But anyways, I, w- I was uh, sent to review a whole bunch of different uh, free energy experiments. And we reviewed them online and through Zoom and stuff like that. I mean, you had the Bedini Motors. You have... Um, tons of other people that developed various different types of magnetic technology and in conceptualization it makes a lot of sense that why are we not developing more technologies based upon this why are we reverting towards you know silicon panels that pull in solar radiation or wind turbines that are so 17 1800 you know why are we putting ourselves through this in this so-called green revolution when we should be investing these billions of dollars into exotic energy technologies that we know are there and work and that there, there's thousands upon thousands of classified patents through the patent office in the United States of America alone for these various types of things. I, I talked to one of the, so I was in the military and uh, we, we get big tech pubs, pubs in the military. And uh, I was in one of my primary mainframe computer schools and the, the, the first computer that was developed for the United States Navy, the original design plans came out in 1952 and had um, fully designed transistors without the tech pubs. I've seen the tech pubs. And I said the transistor wasn't, invented till 62 how is this even possible and they kind of started laughing they think hey you think that's crazy just wait and i i started talking to one of the gentlemen who actually worked in the ibm labs who developed the um inverted resistor which would actually generate power when put into a circuit and this is classified technology that you don't see and it's like what are we you know obviously control we understand it's about control we are we are sheep to them and this is where it's supposed to go but for us setting up parallel systems parallel economies we need to be doing more research into this we need to be rebuilding these sacred designs and bringing them forth for our power systems yeah i agree but it's just too disruptive on a mass yeah. scale uh, Schalberger principles also mm-hmm. with gravitational vortex power and some, you know, smaller gravitational or, you know, GVP units that you could put in a stream flow of say one cubic meter per second flow. These types of things will be used for anybody who's trying to get off the grid that can actually implement a system that has continuous water flow. Uh, the Perendev magnetic motor is the one I'm most familiar with, you know, design out there quite a few places, Perendev. And uh, there are different inventors, and you can go through an enormous amount of different designs and see which one might fit your needs or uh, your electrical expertise or those in your field that know. Yep. Now, there we go. if you if you use it just yourself and your community only, and you do not try to bring this to mass production, right? Or Put your designs out to the planet to get everybody else to try to follow you. Generally, you'll be left alone. But the minute you try to put it and commercialize it, like the boys over in Korea did, we haven't heard from them in some time. Hmm. And it just does seem to be like this. You know, you can go through chapter after chapter of history and just go back in time. And you're, Josh, you're more well-versed than myself. People who thought they were making deals that uh, that was their last day because they were trying to bring out something so disruptive into society. So Uh, use those as words of possibility, but also caution. What's your thoughts on uh, HHO generators? Sorry again? Uh, Basically uh, hydrogen generators. People out there developing the HHO cells. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I know uh, one guy who's working on hydrogen on demand technologies mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, oscillating generators, etc. They're in the phases working with the Canadian government now to bring it out into sort of mass production. But again, they're they're just they've been stalled. Even though these contracts have been written and they, you know, for the last two years, they haven't really moved forward with it. It's out there. Yeah, they got the, you know, hydrogen on demand motorbikes and the proof of concept and, you know, trucks running, but they just can't get it out into mass production. It's, it's sure car companies agree. Yeah, we'll do this. Yeah, we'll do that. But it's a, you know, it's, it's bought and it's thrown on a shelf. Oh, sorry. Well, it's a little bit delayed. We couldn't get this extra part. Oh, we're waiting for the chipsets. Sorry, the chipsets aren't there. Da, 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 da. And yeah, hydrogen on demand is a huge possibility there. And again, you know, you're going to pull that power right back into it. And if you put regenerative braking on it, then you got this complete complex system that just regenerates everything as you move down. And hydrogen on demand is the way it's going to be going versus storage in cells. So, you know, there's quite a few different techs out there, but why are the, you know, regardless of what we talk about, why has none of it moved forward since the 1880s should be the question. Well, it goes back to the they, the financiers, the banks, the, the money controllers, those who have the power and control over corporations, over interest, over patent offices, over politicians, over governments and over military, that they lose their control when we become self-sufficient. Yeah, and think about that. At this level, we're talking about right now, this is just your daily life and energy usage and things that are on a meter so you can continue to live and not starve to death. Now, bring it back into where, you know, I come into this cosmic stuff and, and Josh does too. But these last three events that are about to unfold in three successive years are the last level of uh, in a distraction that need to be so buried that the man-made events need to eclipse that by orders of magnitude. So at one day you won't come to the realization that you've been lied to. Hmm. They knew this information decades plural ago that you could have been warned to get ready for these events because the animosity and the anger coming out of the average citizen will topple the entire global financial system, the political systems, and anything of old money, banking, they'll all be hanging by light posts. Once you realize that you were not warned 20 years ago to about the, these events that are happening and in play right now, the crop losses, magnetic field changes, UVB radiation increases that we could have protected ourselves against. The average person would be so angry, so angry. I mean, beyond angry, they would be just full, just, uh, just, just, uh, just, I can't even describe the, the emotion. I'm sure there's a word out there for it, but that angst and, and anger toward would tear down walls of Jericho and to get to the people behind that, this is what's not being told to you because once you realize that you we could have gone on to a different system and been more self-sufficient and gotten off centralized systems to ride this event out. So that was the whole, that's the kryptonite of it all. Yeah. The way to get through this event is we had to become self-sufficient. We all had to have our organized communities all bartering with each other outside of monetary means. We all had to be able to grow our own food, repair our own things, have our own animals because that's what's going to survive is those pockets of people who have done that. So when the system completely breaks down, either to to conduit cable snapping, bridges decoupling off banks, railroad uh, derailments. And I'm not talking about the artificial kind that we're seeing right now. But all of these things are inbound with exactly what you spoke about. 
As the sun steps down, our Earth tries to equalize, but it does it in a couple of ways. It can send outbound current flow with actual measurable changes on the electric circuit going where you see it visibly with the plasma on the red, you know, the, the red sprites, the blue jets and at the halos at the top boundaries, or it can discharge it through Paleozoic earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. You know, where we sit now, we should have been warned about this decades ago. But once you realize what is coming and starting now that we had decades to prepare and you weren't warned, you're going to tear the house down to get at those people. And that's what they need to distract away from is your awareness of these natural phenomenon and these natural cycles on setting, amplifying and completely restructuring civilization and society as we know it like as we go through these next three years on the back side of that you will not even recognize in one shard of what was our prior society and civilization that's where we're heading in these next three years and that's what they're disguising and trying to hide from everybody well and, and i want to get into that part right there specifically but first i want to ask you a question looking if if, if i always try to put my mind my mind in the mind of the enemy I try to see things from their perspective and it's from our perspective. We look at them as evil from their perspective. They probably look at themselves as saviors. But if you saw something like this coming and you withheld this information, kind of similar, we were talking before this in 2012, there was a series of, uh, 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 coronal mass ejections that were coming towards earth that they thought were an imminent hit. And they were civilization ending CMEs. Um, they ended up not hitting, but they classified these CMEs and never told anybody about it until 10 years later. So if they kept this information from us and this did happen, do you think one of the reasons, and we're on YouTube, for the Fauci ouchie, the jabity jab jab, was to call humanity so that there wouldn't be that many left? Or in a twisted sense, they could think with the cosmic radiation increases, the UVB radiation increases with whatever's coursing through the veins, there might be a protection against that. So on a more amplified or more, I think it's going to come into a decrease and then an amplification of resonant frequencies. Whoever exists within that state, if you have those metals coursing through your body and they're replicating and building structures, then in a, in a faster frequency field, would they bring more people through? Hmm. Or would they be those new slaves you're talking about under complete control? Whoever survives the upgrade. Interesting. Well, one part of my research, uh, I go back to a 2014 um, scientific study from Columbia University by a guy by the name of Dr. Martin Blank. And when he, what, what he was studying was the harmful effects of various different types of cell phone and radiating radiation on DNA. One of the things that he discovered is that DNA is an electromagnetic transducer, meaning that it sends and receives signals, as well as an electromagnetic uh, fractal antenna, which keeps itself symmetry no matter how much you break it down. Um, investigating this further around that same time, you find out that there's various different articles talking about the influence of DNA on this, uh, the cosmic microwave background radiation for anybody out there who doesn't know what that is. It's the, what they call it the afterglow, the big bang as if the big bang actually happened. I don't believe that, but it's a microwave frequency that bump that is spread and distributed through the entire galaxy. When it hits our planet, it can range anywhere between three to 300 gigahertz. It tops out and peaks on the surface level of the planet between 28 to 34 gigahertz 
which just happens to be the, the same, same frequency, same frequency of the tuning of your DNA, as well as the first channels of 5G radiation. So my curiosity is, is that this is obviously a cosmic radiation that is coming in, but it has to be dictated some way, shape or fashion by the solar radiation. And we know that the solar radiation bombardment of our planet has various fluctuations in the sense of the current traveling through the ionosphere, which basically produces the 7.85 to 14 Hertz signal that generates on our planet, which puts us in the alpha brainwave state. Now I find that interesting as well because that Schumann resonance Every species on this planet exists within their optimized brain state, their, their alpha brain state, between that 7.85 to 14 hertz, except for one species, us. We're always in a dissonant state of that resonance. And, you know, I, I attribute that to all the ambient radiation that's around us from Wi-Fi to microwaves to 4G, 5G, um, to radar systems, etc., And you have to think about the Schumann resonance has really been blasting somewhere around sometimes 30 to 40 mm -hmm. now. So that's so far outside the ranges there. And I'm wondering what kind of, you know, peaks we feel because a friend of mine, uh, Craig Simpson up at Radiant Creators, we were trying to develop an app. This is just for our own personal use to try to map out our days energetically on the cycle of the moon, whether it was a full moon, a new moon, the KP index, which is showing you know, uh, how much energetics is reaching uh, the planetary uh, bow shock here. And then um, what, what the Schumann resonance was doing. Mm -hmm. So those variables and factors on the moon, the KP index and the, and the Schumann resonance. So there's ultimate, you know, combination of those like a Rubik's cube. But if you can start to map it down and you knew that there was a, you know, KP six and, uh, you know, the moon was new and Schumann was at the regular state, then you'd have this sort of day and you could map that out energetically. So however you wanted to manifest your day and move through energetic and use the energetics that are given to us each day. So you would know how you would feel and what your energetic levels would be. So you could pull yourself out because you feel it was going to be one of those lazy days based on all three of those factors. You could know why you were feeling lazy and then use your mind to, you know, get into a different state and trigger yourself to a different state of art. I understand why I'm lazy. It's natural forces. Now, let's just overcome that with our mind. And we need to blast forward laser style and, and move through that. No breaks. You know, so we were trying to use this for our own benefit in, in terms of getting more done during our days, mapping out the energetic frequencies that were either a limitation or on those days where you already had the most productive day you've ever had in your entire life that you knew that was coming tomorrow or was inbound this morning that you then you knew that you could just focus on bam you're just up to the stratosphere and past it these are real frequencies that affect us on the daily so what you just described is what our ancestors would have called astrology and or tarot and the reason i say that is because what they did is they either anthropomorphized things, they would bring it down into allegory, mythology, these types of figures. And we have various different archetypes of the human mind, various different kind of things that manifest due to the energy configuration of the, 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 the gravitational and the various different electromagnetic forces around us. And we've attributed that in the sense of how astrology is played out. Tarot is kind of like an inner astrology of how the inner system of your body reacts to the outer system. Um, this is one of the foundations of alchemy. And so I, I find that incredibly fascinating that you're looking at a scientific approach to monitoring 
what our ancient cultures used to do through just observation, but obviously not as accurate or efficient. Yeah, because you have to understand that energetic flow, what we understand as astrology and astronomy now are two separate, but yes. say 200 years ago, they were combined together. Yep. And again, that's that's about hiding history and hiding part of our true nature of self to understand these. You know, astrology has been relegated to the woo-woo. Go back 200 years prior, and they were an intertwined science because you understood where the celestial bodies stood in the actual physical location of space. But then there was already a mapped out field of, okay, the energetic resonance of that changes as the celestial body moves through. We're going to either a, a more energetic field in space a heavier debris field area of space, uh, a less dense field of space, maybe temperatures will drop on the planet, but they had all this mapped out. And I'm wondering how many cycles it had taken to map it out. Because if you look at the Maya and you go back, they had 222 million years, or no, it was 220 million, excuse me, of going above and below the ecliptic on one complete circle around the entire galaxy of where we stood today where our planet sits 220 million years later, we're going to come back and we're going to be at the same exact place again. Now they'd mapped that out for 220 million years on a cycle. So within that, there's got to be smaller cycles that can be mapped out as well. Yep. So when you start to look at that in the astrology and the astronomy, like how many times have we'd been through the same rodeo being able to map out, okay, we're coming into a denser region of space. Okay, there's more plasma in this area. The temperatures are going to increase. Okay, we're going to get a heating effect on the planet. Okay, we're going to literally an empty area of space. Plasma is really low. No space debris out there. We're going to come into a cooler period. And then we're coming in through the fuzz, as I've heard it called before, where we get to get bombarded with space rocks. You know, just things that are left in space. If you believe in Tiramid and the collision there, all right, there's other uh, areas that have been collided before that there's debris fields out that we pass through on a regular basis, mappable. That's the whole thing. These cycles are mappable, literally down to years of when we're going to pass through these same or transit these same areas of space again with the same exact effects time after time after time after time. I, I agree. And for, for me, it, it's it's a lot about observation. So from an Earth-based observation, if people look up to the sky and they put a dot on their window every time that they saw the sun starting on December 25th, they put a dot on their window at noon, and they did that throughout the whole entire year, what they would get is this figure eight sign, which is known as an analemma. The moon does it over a 29.5-day cycle. And my perspective was a step outside of the galaxy and look at the solar system as it transits the galactic center up and down in this sine wave shape and form. It's going to produce the same cyclic action of the analemma, which means that as we transit the galaxy, we go to summer, we go to two equinoxes and we go to a winter. If we know that the galaxy is in a sense polarized, positive and negative, as well as has a higher concentration of gravitational forces towards the center of the arms, which means that if there's a higher concentration of gravity at the center of the arms, there's a more dense, um, more dense matter. All right, we should be coming back up now. Let me go in here, validate these streams are coming back up. All right, sorry about that, guys. OBS dicked out on us. We're just getting too close to the truth. That's what. That's just what it is. Too close. I'm going to say I've had that happen many a time on Skype when I get into something deep that the feed yeah. cuts on Skype. One hundred percent. And I, I was explaining is the 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 solar system's transit through the galaxy, and you know the center of the galaxy has a greater propensity of gravity, so you have 
more dense gases and mass and matter and stuff like that. But I went out to saw it, David, is where do we, where are we now in that galactic transit? And one thing that I look at is I look at occult symbolism. I look at the symbology that these evil, these people on the planet are putting out there. I look at the rituals. There was two rituals last year that happened in the sense of ancient Egypt. They reopened the King's Road, which is a 1.7 mile road between Karnak and Luxor. Um, This is the Road of Osiris. 1.7 1.7 is 17. That's Osiris's number. It's also the de- declination of the star Cirrus. And so it has specific meaning. They're talking about the resurrection, the rebirth of Osiris here. And I said, well, they only reopen that road every 3,500 years. So that's every two uh, or one and a half processional cycles. Uh, so I started looking into where we were in this galactic transit. And sure enough, we just came out of winter. We just hit that December 25th rebirth period at that bottom of that transit and turning right back up. And historically, I went out there and I was watching um, a few people explain this. I think Randall Carlson was one of them. And he showed how as we go into this and how we come out of this, there's massive cataclysms every single time and that our ancestors actually mapped this out. And the cataclysm coming into it would have been the entering of the Lower Dryas. And now we're coming out of it, and they're suspecting that we're going to have the same type of effect. Yeah, I've seen a lot of Randall's work, too. That's a galactic cross or the crossing there. Mm-hmm. And again, if you like in symbolism, if you're looking at, you know, we were talking about with the sun doing it, you know, and it looks like a figure eight. It really does. So if you go back in, in Chinese mythology, eight is the luckiest number but then for us it looks like the infinity symbol especially because it's not an eight it's sort of tilted on its side so it doesn't matter if you're looking at western symbolism or eastern mysticism they both come with that number eight quote unquote but it's the same pattern that you're referencing it just turned into a numeral in the more modern age Mm -hmm. still encoded still secret to many but that galactic cross again you know when we start to talk about you know, birth of Christ, the cross, the, the the crucifixion. Why is everything that we look at also about the cross, the crossing? So it doesn't matter if it's religion, mythology, legend. It always has the same symbolism repurposed to explain the same exact events, whether it's a certain... 25,750-year event or whether it's a 2,000-year event. 400 year event, these same cycles are overlapping with the same symbology on top of them. And I guarantee absolutely 1000% the keepers of this knowledge still are on this planet, keeping the time clock. Mm -hmm. Because one thing I learned living in China, there is still a sect in China following the Big Dipper, the Beidou Qixing, which is the cult of the Big Dipper. They understood that the Birkelin current powering our star comes from that big dipper the way they have that talk about the current flows the consciousness of humanity emanates from that so there's still an entire worship and study of the heavens the mandate from heaven being removed from the rulers during times of Berkeley current flow step downs which we're experiencing now basically changed in the sun's output changed the magnetic field on the planet less crop production you can't feed your people you have no right to rule and they have this mapped out, and there's actual real name for that. The mandate from heaven has been removed from the emperor. Hmm. You know, so that they understand the energetics in it. They might use different words, but they understand that these flows of energetics from spiral arm of the galaxy, 
different stars that align with each other and these string of pearls when they onset and form stars along electric currents in the sky plasma flows you might have looked back and say there's a bunch of barbarians living in cave that was our prehistory but i would state unequivocally that they understood the energetics of the of the solar system of the galaxy and were able to move through these cataclysms far better than going we are going to be able to deal with it beginning right this second here how far back do you think human civilization actually goes 21 million years why that number uh vedic texts uh stories out of place artifacts they they have had some out of place artifacts around 300 million year range but if we look at what we understand, almost every out-of-place artifact doesn't extend past 21 million years. Mm -hmm. Also, the Vedic text, if you roll back through the chapters of history and the, the chapters of change of ages. Um, in the modern time, what we consider Homo sapiens sapien as us in our present form, physiologically, mentally, etc., exactly the same, 400,000 years. Which means that we've rolled through three periods of interglacials. So we sit in interglacial right now where it's the warmest time during an ice age break between that cold of 90,000 years. So we've had several of those intervals that we've survived through. So I'm also wondering, like, where are the civilizations that spent 10,000 years building up their civilization before they were cascaded into the abyss while on the onset of a new ice age? Mm. So that's one thing to think about. That's subset. But here's the thing that really gets me is. Like our weather patterns have been really stable for such quite a long time that we've been able to develop a society based on agriculture and grain yields because we had extra calories to bring our societies and civilizations up to this point. Stable climate. So what happens when an ice age onsets? Well, it destabilizes everything. As we onset into the next ice age, our civilization would disappear anyway because of the temperature changes. But as we hit into that you know, low of the ice age, when everything's at its maximum glaciation, that's going to set for 40,000 years of stable climate. So the stable climate periods are actually much more stable during the full glaciation periods of 40 to 50,000 years of stable climate versus what we consider now, you know, we'll get a few thousand years here and there of stable climate to build our civilization in the warm periods. But really the most stable climate would have been during the, the, the depths of the ice age so you got to really wonder what kind of civilization could evolve after forty thousand years of very little disruption compared to our ten thousand years of warmth where we've built to what we have today so that really explains a lot of these prehistory civilizations that have come and gone and then if i might add the one last thing here yeah. okay the closest in 100 and you know 10 to one hundred eighteen thousand years ago of interglacial where where's the remnants of that hmm. Well, where's the remnants of that? The closest in of ourselves during the last interglacial, where is that? There's no record of it. It's hidden from us. Well, in the question as well as where would the warm pockets be during their those inter those glacial periods? Where would those warm periods be? Is there continental shifting, drifting? Is there variations in the Earth's crush? Is there volcanic activity occurring? Because if we look at this, I mean, they just discovered. 3,500 feet underneath the Pacific Ocean, right outside, I believe, of the Solomon Islands, a man-made road, 3,500 feet under the ocean. 
and it, clearly a man-made road. And they're saying, oh, it's got to be about 2,800 years old. And I'm like, it's 3,500 feet below the ocean. This thing has to be tens of millions of years old. What are you talking about? But this is what academia and science does. Um, so, so where would the warm pockets be during these glacial periods? And where do you think they potentially would be? Well, you're going to have to add in a lot of different variables there because you just talked about crustal subsidence. You know, that wasn't sea level rise that put that under. That was, you know, we came into a zero field magnetic solar system for a moment, however long that is. You know, I really believe we're going to transit through 2024 in October and something. We're going to come into a zero state or very close to zero state magnetic field. Now, if you see some of these you know, Hollywood-esque movies of like the day after tomorrow, they came into a zero point field there, zero magnetic field where areas rose out of the ocean and other areas subsided and massive waves coming over the Himalaya. The Himalaya sunk beneath the sea, not because there was sea level rise, but if the planet stops and then it starts re-rotating and it shifted a couple of degrees, everything that we know is where the equator was would be different. The amount of mountain ranges that would either come out of the ocean like the uh the mists and the maori people or the legends or the actual understanding of how those mountains were pulled out of the ocean to create new zealand they talked about the earth stood still and the mountains rose out well they were pulled by a fisherman you know it explains a lot of things on the subsistence and the subsidence or the emergence of different land masses coming out of the ocean on if we had a zero magnetic field on the planet and things shifted so it's hard to go back to get some real preciseness on that because the equator would also shift. Now, whether it's a 90 degree tilt like Velikovsky talks about or uh, Charles Hapgood in this Earth's crustal displacement displacement theories, you know, there's massive movements of equatorial bands around through time. But uh, is it mappable? Do we know where the new lands would come? Is that on a pattern as well that can be mappable? Well, the Himalaya is going to sink and this other area is going to rise up and then over you know, in the next million years, that's going to sink back down. There are some signs. That, you know, but humans being here just in the last 400,000 years. So we know at least what happened where that road that was built has been built within the last 400,000 years and had sunken under the ocean to that great depth. Off of Cuba, there's also another city they found at 6,500 feet in depth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's not sea level rise. That was above the water level and that area of the entire planet sank as something else rose out. And then you have to wonder how long would that take before the fresh water, you know, there would probably be 10 years of extreme. Yeah, that's why humans get knocked back to, you know, 10 million or under because they were in the right place, the right time in the right pocket just to survive it. And then eventually weather patterns would stabilize. We got to figure 10 years of just, you know, once in a thousand, once in a 5,000 year rainstorm, every single storm, like how long would that would take to wash the salts out before the land would be viable to grow food back and the stabilization, stabilization patterns after all these cataclysms, we're talking 10, 20, 50, hundred years, 200 years before weather patterns and atmospheric flows get back to their normal. Uh, the sun restabilizes its magnetic field, the earth restabilizes and everything in that whole flow of atmosphere from jet stream and cloud cell locked back in place where we can get some, you know, you can plant this time and you can harvest this time. But that is absolutely going to change like a Rubik's Cube as well. All those factors you talked about on where the warm zones would be based on the tilt of our planet after the uh, zero magnetic field anomaly that we would rush through. 
Yeah. If that makes sense. It, it does. It does. You mentioned the day after tomorrow. Now, that actually derived from a book called The Coming Global Superstorm by Art Bell of Coast to Coast AM and uh, Whitley Strieber. And, mm. um, you know, a lot what they talked were, uh, talked about in that book were the crustal changes that actually occurred. And I believe Whitley had some divine revelation of where this actually came from and, and brought this idea about. I know that uh, Major Ed Dames, in the sense of the remote viewing project, had a lot to do with that whole vision. Um, but, you know, if we look at the Earth as this hydraulic system, this electromagnetic hydraulic system, a pressurized electromagnetic system, it makes a lot of sense that after one of these major shifts and changes where you go to this zero point activity that the earth would try to recompensate itself and readjust the inner workings of its pressurized system of which you would probably see uprisings of continents. Antarctica move more towards the equator. North America maybe sink down below the waterline. Other parts come up. I mean, we've all seen the, the, the topographic images of the oblate sphere of this planet, of how uh, deformed it actually really is and how easy it would be for a lot of those things to sink under the sea and other parts to rise up. Yeah, and the Adam and Eve story is another one that mm. was uh, classified. Yeah, but that goes into Hapgood's work too. But just the crustal displacement, or you know, the crust. Uh, what's that? Where it said they say that it moves about you know an inch or two a year, and this gradualism has been just like slammed into our heads since time immemorial. No, nothing can move that fast. No, there's never cataclysms that change Earth's present form over hundreds of millions of years. This plate tectonics explains it all. Why are they trying to hide these catastrophism events from us is the question. Because they're on a cycle and you wouldn't pay your taxes or invest and you wouldn't obey the rule of law. Once you knew another one was on setting, there's nothing else to live for except the day. So why would you worry about 30, 50, 60 years in the future? You wouldn't. Do you think they're using various weather modification technology, HARP and so forth to speed this up to make it occur faster? I'll say one thing that yes, but at the same time, this, you know, harp's always in conjunction with stratospheric aerosol geoengineering, mm -hmm. but again, a different layer of that onion is the cosmic radiation management that accompanies that using the same nanometals to nullify a charge of an incoming cosmic ray particle so you know when they're slamming those nanometals in the atmosphere they lose their charge but generally that would have hit and cascaded and caused clouds so you know you look at this layer of the onion here of okay there's there's you know injecting something at high altitudes up there and i'm sure what we're seeing with the planes is a different type of injection that you would see something that was at 60 70 000 feet that you could not see with your eyes but it's all about mitigating the cosmic radiation bombardment that's occurring. Now, it, understand that it's it diminished a little bit because we're in the solar maximum phase of our, our sun right now. But it's, you know, still the lowest in 100 plus years as we sit. You know, solar cycle 24 was incredibly low. If you look at solar cycle 24, yeah. it was the lowest in the last 100 years. And solar so cycle 25 is not really eclipse that it's running sort of at the level and i am saying the same thing john casey told me 
So we'll cycle 25 might start out a little bit. It's going to dribble along. There's going to be a bunch of X flares to because there's a change in frequency and that sun is trying to out. You know, it's it's going to be overcharged as well. So it's going to send a huge amount of X flares out and it's suddenly just going to stop and drop off a cliff and they'll be baffled as to why it happened. And once we hit into that, then we're going to go through two solar cycles of incredibly low solar activity. And even NASA and European Space Agency, solar cycle 26 and 27, they put some maximum sunspots like six, six. So six. That's crazy. Like they're there and you understand that next solar cycle, we're coming into this sort of society disrupting event anyway on the solar cycle. Sun's output that allows us to grow food. And they're still this close in within seven years or so and still not warning anybody. That's why I'm saying that it's, they're just going to let everybody go down with the ship and say, hey, you might want to get a lifeboat later. Uh, wait, uh, no, too late. Bye bye. Typically, when we see fluctuations in extremes, when we see something that is relatively low or below normal, there's always going to be a compensatory mechanism that is going to come out of that at some point, especially if it's abnormal to normal behavior. So if we had so many solar cycles of suns, what we call uh, normal behavior, and all of a sudden, like you just said, the last few solar cycles have been kind of like this subnormal abnormal very very low so you firmly believe that we're gonna have these various large fluctuations within the 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 uh, solar maximum cycles well it's it's possible we've reached the first peak out of the two for this solar max cycle mm -hmm. it just depends if that truly was the peak that we just rolled through and we're going to go into the next peak and then it drops off it's an unknown but a lot of Physicists and, and astrophysicists, Pierce Corbin, Dr. Abuzimatov, the Pokobo Observatory, John Casey, uh, Valentina Zarkova, and a list of others have said this one's going to peak early and we're going to drop off a cliff. And the average sunspots through this one will be far lower than anybody anticipated. So far, they seem to have been spot on. And that might be all sciencey and everything, but what it really boils down to is can we grow food enough to feed the planet or not? Because we have 8 billion mouths to feed, and as these climate system shifts and the atmospheric uh, precipitation pattern change based on where jet streams are going to bend or not, then it's going to be more and more difficult to grow the food with the onset of early blizzards and the late uh, let out from spring into our planting seasons. You know, what's affected by radiation? You know, seeds themselves, you know, they're affected by radiation, too. They've done an enormous amount of experiments on different electrical inputs into the seeds before they're planted. And they come out with this very, a different species, although it's the same subspecies. It'll come out with different leaf count, different amount of flower head count, a different amount of ear corn count. They've done countless uh, experiments on this. Frequencies into the growth patterns, you know, like as this as all of these things change, the plants themselves, as they're growing, are going to change. Mm -hmm. And the yield out of that will change based on physiological adaptations or morphs of the plants themselves. Sounds so, as like we, a... you know, you try to put this into a, a whole, you know, try to explain this to the average person on the street. And, you know, two minutes into our conversation, when we first started, you would have lost them now you know to really try to put this into perspective like don't worry about your retirement fund because it's not going to be there because the earth is going to shift so gargantuanly in the next three years in terms of radiation magnetic field and then uh 
physical bolides rolling in from space, hitting the crust of our planet here, hitting the surface of our planet, that the disruptions will be so vast across every nation that there will be no structured economy as you understand it anymore. Hmm. Like value of something will remain the same of either labor or food or gold or silver or skills that will remain intact. But everything else is this internationalized system of finance will not. There might be pockets of it that remain, pockets regionally. But then again, those pockets are gonna disassociate for a while until they come back into some sort of larger global type of system but to try to tell somebody that and yeah. get them to just continue going through their daily lives and a lot of this financial system built up. I really believe that part of the reason that we're not being told or haven't been told about this is to keep the financial system intact enough so the globalists can continue to use the supply chains to prepare for what's happening. Because if we all knew yeah. this 20 years ago, this, the, the economy right now would not function. There'd be no there, global economy would have been a shred of itself after 2005. Now, it seems so, like a good reason to incredibly reduce the population of the planet prior to this event. If you knew that you're not going to have enough food to feed eight billion people. Yeah, because hunger people have overthrown every single government throughout history, bar none. Mm -hmm. That's the number one thing that everybody understands. Hungry people overthrow governments every single time. So you might as well have a uh, switch that goes off before that event happens to where the population is greatly reduced. It doesn't matter who is responsible for it. There will be no one held accountable because the courts and the political systems and economic systems will all be gone. Yeah, especially as you roll through these changes. Because you have to think about if there's 8 billion people now and there's still a couple of years left before we go into the magnetic anomalies, uh, the UVB radiation changes next year, you know, people are going to get angry enough to be able to topple governments if there's still that many of them around during the changes itself. And these actual physical manifestations of energy on the planet. I'm curious. We talked a little bit about mud floods. There's a vast tunnel system throughout this entire planet. New York City, Portland, uh, France, all throughout Turkey. And these tunnel systems, they say are a few thousand years old, but artifacts have been pulled out of these things that are 20,000 years old. And some of the ones, especially the ones under Turkey, can house hundreds, if not thousands upon thousands of people. Do you think that this was prior knowledge from another civilization on this planet that took preparations, built these tunnel systems to survive what was coming? I think we are reusing quite a bit of the older cultural layer remnants. Now, I'll tell you a story myself. I went to the Czech Republic and we went out. Uh, if you're in Czech Republic, you know, Prague's way out east. If you go to the west out there before you cross the Austrian border, there's a place called Noimo, Z-N-O-M-O, -O, Noimo. And this place had an underground city, which I'd never heard of before. That mm -hmm. thing housed 20,000 people, and it connected to another valley, which housed another 40,000 people. This is all through the vineyard area. If you're into white wine and you want to go to Noimo, check it out. Super amazing town. Like The, the tunnel systems under there were vast, but they were also saying that they didn't – They 
that got in there and they added to it, but the initial construction of the underground had been there for time immemorial. Hmm. So yes, I am saying that we are going to reuse some of the uh, previous cultural layers. And you always have to wonder, like, how is it that this, just like a whole city got covered in uh, dirt or mud and then we just built right on top of it? Because the old established way that things continued from, say, the Roman era was, oh, we just built on top of their cities. Right. Well, that makes no sense. Are you going to tear every single bitty building down in a city and then build on top of it? No. The only reason you would build on top of it is because it was either completely buried partially buried and then it was a rework type of construction because when you see all these buildings where you need to they cut in the second floor as the door meaning that entire first floor was buried with mud it wasn't worth the time to dig it out let's just build on top of it well that's which why comes back to your mud flood again Th or global liquefaction event as i'd like to term it yeah and we have massive monuments all throughout this world which were buried buried in mud i mean all throughout the planet as in a whole new layer of soil 20 30 40 50 feet 60 feet recovered the whole planet how does that happen it's three times more water in the crust of the planet than there are on all the oceans rivers and lakes combined on the surface that we see as we map out on our maps and we look at world maps of lakes rivers and oceans so if there was what we're talking about pressure differences that would ooze from beneath the crust, which gives credence to Noah talking about when there were massive water jets, you know, 3,000 feet tall spewing from within the earth outbound. Hmm. So again, is it a toothpaste oozing kind of mud event? Will it be sand in some areas? Absolutely, yes, I'll tell you a story here. You know, if you follow the New Madrid earthquakes, you know, there was a New Madrid earthquake uh, that, you know, just ripped apart the center of the United States in the early 1800s. There were sand volcanoes in sandy missions so dense across such a vast area. It took them about 60 years to clean it out and get back and flatten those crop fields and the farm fields again to be able to do agriculture. But there was huge, huge 20, 30, 40 foot deep areas of just sand shooting out of, um, you know, west of the Mississippi through Missouri, etc. So, yeah, there's absolutely things that could... Um, but how would that be disguised? So let me ask you a question, Josh. Yeah. Like you, okay, so this event happened. Like, how would you disguise it and use a different uh, effect for the cause to, you know, get people to look that way and not look at the true cause of the event? Hmm. Well, obviously, disinformation, control of the narrative. We have, uh, you know, I always look at narrative control as multifactional in the sense that, um, you know, starting rumors of weather manipulation or, and we're talking about the New Madrid earthquakes, right? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you could, you could weather manipulation, conspiracy theories, blaming it on the government, these types of things. Is it a distraction that keeps people's minds in a different direction? Um, as well as various different things occurring geopolitically during that time, especially like what we have going on right now, Russia, Ukraine, and China. Um, this is the ultimate distraction. Or just what we had a few weeks ago, balloons in the sky. Don't look up. Oh, my goodness. Are they UFOs? I don't know. They could be. This is what happens. We just had a major earthquake in Turkey, 6.9, at the same time that these balloons are occurring over our skies and people are looking up instead of looking what's happening with the Earth, as well as we had various different earthquakes around the planet at that same time that nobody was even paying attention to. 
Now, I'll say something about the earthquakes. This is my newest research that I'm doing. I'm trying to present my findings here. Um, if you, So if you understand the onset of this grand solar minimum slash onset of either once in a 2,000 year or once in a 400 year event, because these 400 year events wrap themselves in sets of five into the 2,000 year cycle, but then those wrap themselves into the 4,000 year cycle. And we can continue upward in terms of cyclicity. 25,000 year cycle times four is a glaciation cycle. So wherever we sit in that whole overlapping of cycles on top of cycles, more powerful cycles overlapping, mm -hmm. it seems that since about 2019, there's been these clusters of earthquakes as Earth passes through the middle of what we will be in the magnetic anomaly at its strongest point in 2024 October. Now, the forecast giants have slowly been working them way, they're themselves, and they're going to be a perfect square from the visual reference from the Earth, uh, October 23rd of 2024. But these gas giants are slowly moving into their magnetic field interlooping phases. You know, each year it's been getting more intense, more intense. But as the Earth rolls through that, there's been these clusters of earthquakes since about 2019. And you get four or five really large ones, 7.0 plus you know, times four different events, all in a window of about a month to a month and a half. On one, uh, as the Earth passes through that, but then it moves around the, the sun on the backside and we'll get another cluster of quakes. You get, you know, four, five, six really big ones right in that one, one and a half month period of clustering. As the Earth moves through this magnetic window is what I'm calling it. And uh, we just passed through that magnetic window was uh, January, February, March is the magnetic window of this particular. And as we move around the backside of the sun, uh, we'll come through it again. But, you know, the realization of the largeness of the quakes as we transit through and you get these large quake clusters as we move through the magnetic window and that magnetic field in the outer solar system is going to intensify quickly because we only get one more loop through it on the backside of the sun. And then those planets are going to swing in and they're going to really start, you know, looping in on themselves on a new toroid field out there. And as we loop through this, we get three more passes through the intensifying magnetic field until we hit it. Two looping fields on themselves, two looping toroids, and we're going to pass right through the center of that. There's a term for it called the block wall in German scientists. Uh, when two looping fields come in overlaying on themselves and you get into that kind of Bose headset cancellation. Now, it's not a field, it's not a an audio wave, it's a magnetic canceling wave. Mm. Same principles apply. It's called the block wall or the blosh, depending on how you like to use the accent with that. We're going to go rolling through that in 2024 in October. 22nd, 23rd, somewhere around there. So this is really what I'm wondering is, are we going to come to a zero magnetic field point there where resonant fields in the human brain are going to cease and we're going to get either get a download or a, or a, a full uh, insanity mode on the planet? But at the same time, how's the crust going to adjust to that and what types of subsidence? raising out of, are we going to get off the, of the crust of the planet's surface here? So, you know, you get to realize it's about a year and a half, almost two years or a little less than two years. Away. Yep. Did I lose you? Yep. You're freezing up there. Uh, yeah. You know, that's it, it's interesting, too, because we know that we're due for a magnetic reversal. Uh, we're a few hundred thousand years overdue for that. 
Um, I was looking at the Carrington event, which was, was one of the last really, really big uh, geomagnetic events that we had on this planet. That was about 164 years ago. Um, and we were talking about cycles within cycles. I mean, you have the, the 11, 12-year solar cycle, and if you do an exponent of that, you get 144 years for, uh, for one of these big super cycles, uh, of which I think we're overdue for. And so we are coming into that right now, potentially, where this could happen. And if we go into that zero-canceling field, like you said, there's going to be a massive bombardment of cosmic radiation coming into the planet during that time. Um, what could be the effects of that specifically on the planet? I mean, could, could I mean, obviously, is this going to produce uh, an electromagnetic pulse type of event? Is this going to produce um, a Carrington type event where kind of very similar to an electromagnetic pulse type of event? Is this going to produce cataclysms, earthquakes? Is this the big event that we think that the globalists are looking for and waiting for? The cosmic rays themselves and the sun would be two separate variables that would have the impact. So a step-down magnetic field on the sun would allow more cosmic rays to come in. So let's say we come into a super bombardment cosmic ray event. You know, the quartzite rock would have a huge effect. So that would be affected first. So if you're looking for seismic zones with quartzite rock in there, that would definitely have the largest impact and effect. Proven, you know, there's thousands of peer-reviewed research papers on on the effects of cosmic rays in quartzite rock and the Paleozoic effect, which you're referring to. So you would definitely see either more volcanoes in these in this type of rock layering through the you know however many miles down you're going into the crust, or the tectonic effects that would also be in that area along a fault zone, depending on what the crustal composition was. Mm. But the the sun itself, the magnetic field, a step down in my opinion would be. Two separate things you're talking about cosmic rays right. although the amount of cosmic rays that could be let in would also be a variable of how how strengthened the the solar magnetic field was but on the physiological side of the human or even just any species of plant or animal on the planet like you know evolutionary leaps and magnetic reversals this is a, a book robert felix wrote who i used to know him before he passed he was saying that there's at times these massive bombardments of cosmic rays that there's a, a, an instant upgrade or an instant shift. That's why there's no fossil record of a jump from one species to another right. because it was radiation based. And then we start to look at this and scratch the head and say, hmm, all right, if we come into something even on a very, 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 very light version in 2024, how will the human react to this? That's the main thing is how is our brain going to handle extreme low magnetic field, if not a zero magnetic field, and increased radiation on the cosmic radiation side? So we have these two variables pushing on how the human will react to this too. It doesn't have something to do with try to nullify or prevent the effect of the upgrade because I have a few uh, discussions with people and they say, you know, perhaps when we come into the zero field, that's where the the download comes in. Like the, the, say, yeah. the, the consciousness from the great creator is like pushed in on a zero magnetic field. And that is the upgrade. And after the field reestablishes itself, that's the new baseline minimum of that download. And I'm trying to explain it in words that people would understand. So, versus the universal consciousness flow that will allow you to 
uptake information, integrate information, upgrade DNA in a zero magnetic field that's no other time will zero magnetic field, which only occurs once every 2,000, 4,000, 12,000, or 25,000 years. So, love that, because in that one cycle, the galactic cycle that I was actually talking about before, that rebirth cycle that happens after we hit that winter point, we start moving back up, we change polarization. Yep, and, and I talk about it like this, is that think about the Earth as a radio station that's picking up 103.5. Mostly all the people on this planet are resonating with that Earth's primary frequency, which is determined by the position in the solar system, its position in the galaxy as per the galactic center and all the other objects that rotate around it and all this other stuff, but primarily where it is in that galactic flow of things. And if we think about it as like 103.5 FM, most people are on a bell curve averaging the with that some people are at 99.5 we know those people they're they're fucking idiots right some people are at one o- station right yeah. some of those are 105.3 some of those are 107.9 the people at 105.3 and 107.9 been sitting here going you guys don't get it man there's a whole new world out there consciousness reality you got to look and expand it and we're we're the ones going out there in exotic technologies we're the ones out there looking in conspiracy theories these people at 103.5 are sitting there going what the fuck are you guys talking about man this is all crazy stuff well what happens is is this planet now is going through this chain as you were just talking the, the human resonance is fluctuating i i seen sometimes even in the 60s and the 70s is that the the frequency orientation of this planet the cosmic microwave background radiation is becoming more and more resonant with our dna and i believe that evolution was specifically built into the universe it only makes sense and as we transit this galactic cycle as we go from one polarity to another polarity and back up again through the various points of density our dna starts resonating with the new signal or frequency as the progression of this occurs and that we move from this 1035 baseline bell curve to this 1053 the planet does and consciousness all the conscious beings on the planet begin resonating resonating with that new conscious frequency as it rebirths and restarts all over again. And a lot of people just won't fucking make it because they just, they don't have the mental, the spiritual, the physical capacity. They can't, they they can't even accept the new frequency. Agreed. Yep. So that's how I, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And I will say one thing as we're starting to move through these changes, you know, you're going to start to hear and see things that just, you know, it might be out of the glint of your eye. Like you might see something over here. We're like, whoa, what was that? I never saw. The frequency field's going to change. So your visual spectrum should change as well. Your auditory spectrum is going to change as we're moving in this to the next, you know, one and a half to two years here. You're going to start, and that might actually make sense of, you know, th- blend those where suddenly they're in range. And this is, where, you know, we come back into myth and legend again. Forget the plasma and the squatter man. Is standing in front of you that just came into visual frequency that you're able to see it and you will understand what a lot of these ancient stories were about 100 this is what our ancestors have been trying to talk to us about teach us about for the longest time um one of the last things i wanted to talk about is antarctica there's a lot of activity going down in antarctica multiple countries have various different treaties down there do you think Antarctica is the arc that they're building under the ice to b- wait out this cataclysmic event. 
I think there's multiple points across the planet. You look at Svalbard, the uh, seed repository. So maybe they're trying to split it up. Okay, you take the northern hemisphere, we'll do the southern. One of them will survive. Right. But I'm unequivocally saying that this year uh, there's going to be a catastrophic ozone depletion. Oh. The way it can be explained simply with science is the Hunga Tonga eruption in January of last year sent 10% more water vapor into our atmosphere in one single day. So we had 100% of precipitable water or clouds or things that could make rain in the atmosphere. And that eruption added 10% to the global total in one day. Now, a huge amount of that in the initial blast came out, went up 30 to 50 miles into the mesosphere, which is above the stratosphere, above the ozone layer, above where the most of the weather occurs down here in the troposphere. That layer is a desert layer. It is so dry. It's one of the driest layers until you proceed up into, you know, you get up toward the ionosphere, the upper reaches where it turns into space. Hmm. Now, this water ejected into there formed these huge, massive, unbelievable amount of ice crystal clouds in the in the mesosphere. The only problem with that is that's where ozone breaks down in either a chlorine reaction or a bromine reaction occurring on the ice crystal surfaces. The more of those ice crystals there are, the more ozone can be broken down. So you're taking an O3 molecule and stripping off one of the oxygen atoms and recombining it into a chlorine. You get like a CLO variant or a BRO variant, a bromine oxygen variant. And the more ice crystals there are, the more this catalyst can occur. So the more ice crystals equals more ozone breakdown. Hmm. Now, since the last, uh, since 2000, the year 2000 was the lowest and the largest the ozone hole ever was. So the 30 million square kilometers. And if you look at these really wide ozone hole periods, you'll find dropping off a cliff, catastrophic drop off in quote unquote, ecological terms of Antarctic sea ice. There is a direct equation on how much UVB gets through there because of depleted ozone on the massive melt of the sea ice. Hmm. We are going to go so far beyond anything that has ever been measured in terms of ozone reduction and depletion because we are at like a 50 sigma event of the amount of ice crystal clouds in the mesosphere. Now, that that's just a science explaining why there's going to be runaway uh, sea ice loss in the southern hemisphere, which they'll probably try to blame on global warming or something. But it's truly that there's just more UVB, UVB that will be allowed in because there's not as much ozone. Well, the part two of that is the UVB is going to ravage crops across the southern hemisphere. Now, my whole report in January on the opportunity cycle report, which I do also consulting for the dairy industry, they were asking like specific crops in specific regions. Mm -hmm. So barley, barley will be massively affected by this. And barley is not, you know, a huge global crop like uh, corn or wheat. So barley losses at a minimal level equate to massive rises in, in uh, food fodder for animals. Because a lot of the barley is used for fodder. Some of it's used for malting barley. Some of it's used for, you know, like us to make breads and different kind of products that come into a supermarket. But the lion's share of that is for fodder 
for the you know for dairy or any types of um animal uh, just animal husbandry where that food right. silage is required for that with the wipeout of that and a reduction of at least 40% globally, you're going to watch the prices of barley spike, but you're also going to watch a huge repercussion in, in animal husbandry get whacked at the knees too, because the input for the feedstock on that is going to reduce whatever output of it would be milk or it be cheese or meat or whatever it is down that and wherever that heads to. That's just one example of what's going to be affected, but overall plant species in general, uh, and also you're going to be looking at altitudes on where these are. You know, so a ground level at zero at sea level will not have the effect that it would up at, say, 500 feet, 1,000 feet, 1,500 feet, 2,000 feet in altitude. The higher altitude you go, the more your crops are going to be wiped out. So then you start to have to look at the altitude where crops are being grown in the southern hemisphere, major crop growns, crop grow zones in which countries, and then you get the UVB. And then I'll loop you back into, then you can start to look where the outbound field flows are or the outbound current flows are in the Southern Hemisphere. And you're like, whoa, you're telling me the largest grow zone in, in, in Argentina and Brazil were already being affected greatly by the current flow outbound bending weather systems there. But now they're going to get this massive UVB damage. And also Western Australia has another outbound current flow that's really been affecting crops. So we're looking at two major grain belts in in south america that were previously affected just by the the electrical activity of earth discharging the overcharge bending the weather systems there and affecting crop production but now we're going to get into these massive massive uvb crop losses from radiation damage on the plants the food shortages are coming and i've been saying this well when i was really going into this last year with the fertilizer uh production decreases because of the the Russian sanctions, I knew that was it, right? When they hit all the countries and said, you need to stop producing fertilizer because we want to penalize Russia. I was like, that's it. We rolled over the edge there. And they're, they're trying to disguise the crop losses now to the point where we're coming into a global famine. All Most governments would be toppled during the famine time. So there's going to be all these distractions since that. It's been less than a year and a half. And we sit at this point now where we're on the brink of a global war. And the crops from this year forward are going to be way less and way less and way less. So thanks for letting me ramble there. I just maybe went yeah, over that. No, it, it, it's fantastic information because I think it's something that people definitely need to hear. Uh, we actually run a private social network uh, outside of this. And that's a lot of what we talk about on our private Zooms is I, like my brother, he homesteads. We got homesteaders that come in and, and they talk to us and try to tell us and, and what we should be doing. My big thing is I live, I just moved from Denver, Colorado to country, Bodunk country, Minnesota. And it went from, you know, living in a city of a hundred thousand to living in a city of 2000. And I'm at home here. This is like, this is perfect. Even though it's Minnesota, I grew up in the Northeast. I'm okay with the weather. But my next spot is in the next two months is to go buy 30 plus acres and then begin getting this ready within a two hour drive because that's all I need, two to three hour drive from where I currently am, as well as having a community that can organize around it. Uh, I was telling people, go out to your butcher, get, go to a CSA, talk to them. 
say, hey, look, if something does happen to the economic system, if society does begin to degrade or collapse, what are the things that you're going to need in a barter and exchange system? These are the type of things that we should be doing right now, making these deals and negotiations, going out there and developing these relationships for when this does happen. We don't need to come up with a plan. All we have to do is execute it. Yeah, and these communities are going to come together almost instantaneously after this event happens because you can't tell me you're going to go into a very food lean time, collapsing economy, and people are just going to sit there and go, no, I'm going to stay by myself. Of course not. Just humanity has been through such trials and tribulations over the last 12,000 years alone, let, let alone the last 400,000 years of glaciation entry and exit and cataclysms and these sort of things. Just think about it. humans are going to come together and people are going to come together to help each other because our survival is going to be relying on us helping each other. There's no way shape is impossible. I'm absolutely going to say impossible. If you think with just two of you, you're going to survive on your own and grow all your own food and do all these things and fix everything. It's not going to work. Yeah. You need a good 200 people around 150 people to share skills to be able to get this. But I'm telling you, absolutely. It is going to happen organically out of the need to stay alive. Yeah. That people are going to come together. Now, in the beginning, there's going to be some mischievous characters in there that will be eliminated quite quickly. But after that, like upheaval period, there's going to be a subsidence and a smooth period where people will work together. It's just a lot of elements will need to be eliminated during that transition period who try to overtake or just strong arm resources during that time. And see, that's the whole thing. You're going to have to mentally make these choices before you even get into that situation. You're absolutely going to need to. Yeah. But just on the hopeful side, humanity always has and always will come back together again to help each other to survive through. Or else we wouldn't be here with 8 billion people having this conversation. Hadn't we done that the last 50 of these events? It's, I think it's just the default nature of humanity is to come back in when there's nothing. The economy will mean nothing, whether you live in a 50,000 square foot house or if you're living in. Um, out of a barn you built yourself or whatever. If you're living in your car, it won't even matter. Even if you're homeless, it will not matter at all. You're still alive and you still can contribute. So those kind of socioeconomic things that divide us so much now will mean absolutely zero. You're either going to eat today or you're not. All of us are going to eat today or we will not. And it's going to be about working together to then you know bring us through and keep that as a hopeful message because I have people write in, they just want to check out. I'm like, no, you need to stay here. Please, please, please stay with us. Please stay here. I need you here now because it's going to be uh, a collective of everybody coming together and just kick this darkness back for another few thousand years once we win this battle and move through and actually reestablish a society that works again with common sense, common law, and uh, you know, us staying on the side of of common sense to run the society versus this clown show that we've wound up in. But again, it could be electromagnetic field changes. It seems like every every establishment of history, you hear about it again, whether it's Lemuria or um, if you want to come to Atlantis. I don't care if you believe in that or not, but the stories remain the same. They came to the ultimate in tech. Their societies dissolved because of uh, immoral behavior and non-commonsensical, you know, under currents throughout the entire society and it just broke apart ripped and shredded now can we learn something from that alone as we sit in that exact same position today of three previous supposed civilizations all came to their demise under the same exact circumstances and we sit in the same exact circumstance but refuse to acknowledge it spot on man I i'll tell you uh 
quite a few years ago, over a decade ago, um, I was told specifically that there's something coming and to survive and to help others survive. Don't try to stop it. You can't stop it. Don't try to interfere with it. You're not going to be able to do anything. Just survive. Because the most important part is being there for humanity after this happens. Because people are going to be needed with critical skill sets, with leadership ability to bring back those who are shocked and weak and have no idea what to do, that lack the skills necessary to survive, that people are going to be needed to rebuild society. And, and this is where we're at. We're, this is where we are. This is where we're at now. We're here. We're at that point. Yeah, no, we're going to go through the juncture of all these changes here. So, you know, there's only three events that are left to happen before, like the the reestablishment of a new world is the first one will be this catastrophic ozone loss at the end of the year here. Second, in a very year, short year following that, we're going to come into this magnetic field anomaly in 2024 as the Earth passes through two looping toroids. After that, the Earth's going to swing out in front of the sun and whatever's out there, all the gravitational pull from the sun and everything in the entire solar system is directly behind us. So we're going to get whacked with a huge amount of debris. But as we swing back past the sun, then it's kind of it. That's it. The chapter's over. We know that is the chapter of reset. I'm just wondering, you know, all these communities will establish themselves and, uh, you know, autonomy will be the name of the day. But I'm just wondering when these uh, elitists are going to pop back out from underground with their digital whatever and say, oh, no, you were too free. You got to come back under the control system again. It's not going to be immediate. I couldn't really see them in terms of globalists, as we understand them today, trying to reassert control until, you know, past 2030 or so when communities are still going to need to move through these changes and actually have thriving economies and thriving populations before the control net can be thrown over again because a a world that is struggling to survive will not accept anything that will interfere with their food growing ability or their ability to to you know trade with others or their ability to refine their water or hunt or have their own you know basic life needs met told you can't do that. That's against the law. Nobody will accept that mm-hmm. in a struggling new reemergence of humanity. It's going to have to get strong enough before it can be coddled under the wing of control again. So I would say a good 10 years past that. So if we're going to rock into all these events, I would say 2032, 2033, these uh, snakes are going to pop back out from underground and try to reassert control because there's going to be strong trading communities by that point. You know, this whole thing and you know, I, I try to come in with a positive thing because it won't take but a minute for us to realize the plight we're in. And it's going to take about three seconds after that before we organize again. And within a couple of weeks, you already got your food growing back up and running. So it's not like the world's going to collapse and we're going to sit in some Mad Max world where nobody's going to help each other. It's going to be, I com- think, completely the opposite of the brainwashing and, and messaging that we've gotten out of Hollywood. Like after these post-cataclysmic events, there's all these rogue people running around trying to kill each other and nothing nothing is functional at that point i think it's going to be the complete opposite where once we get into this duress situation we're going to start helping each other immediately and we're going to come out with the most thriving communities that we have ever seen after this but then once it reaches that pinnacle of off complete systems of complete autonomy again off of any government teat for a better term 
they're going to pop back out and go, no, you got to get back on the government teat again. You need to start buying this. You need to start paying taxes. You need to start doing this. But it's going to be a fair minute until that happens. <laughs> That's what I yeah, right. <laughs> like, well, yeah, we still I th- got I, ammo, bro. I, I think that we've already plugged their air holes. So you know, we've already plugged their air holes in their uh, their underground little houses there. Uh, hopefully, at least by that time. Um, David, this was a fantastic conversation. I, I'm actually excited to have you back on again here in the near future. This is going to be fantastic. Uh, your website is oilseedcrops.org. Is that correct? It is. Uh, I used to do plantation byproducts that could be then changed into biodiesel. So I would mm-hmm. go and follow uh, different types of plantations. And after their initial harvest, what was left over in terms of seeds or, uh, you know, this type of thing that could be produced in a, a biodiesel. Now, since that, I haven't really been posting too much. I've been really focused on the mini Ice Age Conversations podcast to get this content out in long form and the adapt 2030 channel it is on youtube yes but it's also on rumble and i have the program over on brighton tv yep. i have a channel on BitChute. i think there's like twenty thousand subscribers over there but it's just trying to get the message out to have conversations like this and Josh, i'm so glad that we had this because it gives people i want to start the conversation and so do you it's not about vilifying anybody it's about we got a big problem coming in not a lot of people are talking about it and all of us are going to be the solution it's not going to be a solution it's going to be a combination of solutions where everybody inputs to find the final outcome of how we can survive through this and not only just survive i don't just want to sit here and survive that's not unacceptable i want to survive thrive and turn this planet into that utopia and that golden era that we all dream of and have heard about for thousands of years, which is going to return. I'm part of that. You're part of that. And that's what we should manifest if we're going to manifest anything. 100% David Dubine. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on conversation on the fringe. You guys, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. This was a fantastic conversation and I'm going to, I'm going to get this guy booked again. Cause we just have to have more in depth conversations on this topic, uh, for everybody out there. Fringe after dark will be in 30 minutes from now. Um, and you can find that on socialredpill.com under the events tab, under the social red pill zoom. We'll see a lot of you guys there. Everybody else, you guys have a great night. Take care. And we'll see you guys next time. Good night. Either we will get the full cooperation of other governments to stop this menace, or we will expose every bribe, every kickback, every payoff, and every bit of corruption that is allowing the cartels to preserve their brutal reign. And it is indeed brutal. And uh, they call me eye patch McCain. (laughs) I I think it's, I, I haven't, look. Frankly, uh, if you look at the media, where the media is a closed media, we don't have an open free media anymore. They don't want to hear anything. They don't write about it. It's, a, it's collusive. It's, uh, nobody's ever seen anything like it. It all happened during this period of time. It happened just before the election. They wouldn't talk about certain subjects that you know better than anybody, Michael. And, uh, you know, that's the beginning of communism.